Hello and welcome back to Powersuit Podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Ingram, and I'm the founder of Powersuit Social, a creative network for uncertain times. This podcast is all about how we can stay skilled up and employable while the goalposts keep moving. And today I'm delighted to be joined by someone who has also moved with the times, and that is magazine CEO turned entrepreneur, Anna Jones. Anna was previously heading up Hearst magazines, having over the years worked her way up from marketing manager for women's titles like Grazia and More magazine through to being COO and finally CEO for Hearst UK. She's also an experienced board advisor, being on the board of the Creative Industries Foundation, as well as a member of WACL. Some of you will be familiar already with WACL. It stands for Women in Advertising and Communications London. It's been around since 1923, has been doing great things for women in the creative world ever since. Speaking of doing great things for women, in 2017, Anna took the plunge and co-founded Albright with serial entrepreneur Debbie Wasco. The company has a women's members club, the Albright, training for female entrepreneurs in the guise of Albright Academy, and much more, including even a magazine. In any case, I've been following Anna's career for a long time, so I'm really happy to be here in the studio with her today. So welcome, Anna. Thanks for having me. So Anna, you're now co-founder of Albright, and you've been the CEO of Hearst, and been on, on several boards, but can you take me all the way back to the start? What was your first ever job? So I suppose my first ever job was a Saturday girl. Um, I lived in York, a very beautiful town in North Yorkshire. Um, and when I was 13, I worked in a gentleman's outfitters called Elicas. Um, and I basically worked from early to late for £20. And that was my first sort of foray, I guess, into the world of work. Um, but really, I suppose my first job was uh, post-university. And I worked as an account executive for communication agency Ketchum. Mm. Um, it was actually before Ketchum merged and so it was called Scope at the time and I worked there for almost two years across multiple different kind of accounts in the business to business um, section of the company which was a baptism of fire I suppose. Um, very interesting because in comms you get to do all sorts from kind of crisis management to brand development and I also I suppose made my first real friends um, at work who have, well, I suppose, with the start of my sisterhood. And when I think about what I'm doing now, it's quite interesting. I'm still in touch with them all. In fact, I'm having dinner with one of them tonight. And they're kind of four of us are still very much a, a support group, if you like, for each other. And I think that's it's been super powerful and something which I still think about a lot in my time now at Albright. Oh, well, was it what came after that? So after I realised I wasn't really cut out for um, comms, my degree was in international business management. And so I'd done all the different sorts of um, business activities. I suppose I'd learned about them and everything from sort of economics and accounting through to communications, marketing, etc. And I knew that I wanted to work in a broader um, sphere of marketing. And comms is very important, but I wanted to do a bit more. So I actually went from Ketchum into a role in video games for a company called Acclaim which was a bit of an odd move for me because I wasn't really a, a gamer myself, but it was fantastic because I got to work in all different types of activities within the marketing mix. So everything from sort of packaging to promotion to selling into retail, design, PR, everything. So it was it was quite a fun way of learning the ropes, but it, it wasn't really uh, something I wanted to do long term. So after that, I then moved into the publishing industry. I see. So you haven't really touched gaming since? No. What about playing games? Not really a big gamer. <laughs> My kids are, but I'm not really. Maybe, maybe it put me off, I don't know. <laughs> 
I read recently that women form 50% of the gaming consumer base, like customer base, but only something like 20% of the roles in making games. Yeah, um, it's, it's very male dominated. I mean, I was in a company of, there were probably about 60 of us and four women. Wow. Um, so I was very much in a minority there. And um, out of interest, we're all four in the marketing department. Two of them were and two of them on reception. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I hope things have um, have moved on somewhat since then. Um, I thought it was interesting to see it on, on your LinkedIn, doing a bit of stalking, stalking of you. I saw that you ran the marketing for the launch of Grazia. I actually remember Grazia launching and that being such an exciting thing, like a new magazine on the market. And it, yeah, it felt really different. And I remember even like the TV adverts for it at the time. What, what was it like working on that? It was so much fun. We worked on the project in terms of the development of the magazine for a long time. You know, in those days, it was, you had time, you had the luxury of time. So we had an amazing editorial team that were working on a British version of a very well-loved Italian weekly. They thought about, well, what would a weekly glossy look like in the UK? And at the time, you had a number of glossy monthlies like Glamour and Elle and Marie Claire and Cosmopolitan and so on. And you had a whole bunch of weeklies like Heat and Hello and OK, um, but there was nothing that sort of bridged between the two. And people said, you know, it will never work because a glossy is this monthly lean back experience and a weekly is all about this kind of fast paced gossip. But we developed this hybrid, which tested super well with consumers. You know, we did loads of testing on different covers and the absolutely outstanding cover star was Jennifer Aniston. You know, you put her on, people said they would just buy it, they would definitely buy it. <laughs> so it kind of gave us the confidence to launch it. But we realised we were going to have to make a lot of noise to explain what a weekly glossy was. So we had a, a big marketing budget, which was, you know, fabulous. These days, it would be very difficult to be given that kind of money to launch a, a magazine product. Um, and as you can remember, we did some pretty memorable TV ads. And so for me, it was amazing experience. You know, um, we got to do a full sort of above the line campaign, massive six sheets and huge posters all over the place um, and TV and radio. And it, we absolutely smashed it. So it was a real success and really, really exciting to work on something which was quite a zeitgeist product at the time. Yeah, no, I agree. I can't really imagine spending that much time and focus on, on a magazine launch now. I just can't imagine. Well, there are, the budgets are not, are not yeah. there, you know. You knew that if you could get that share of attention, share of voice, share of shelf space in the supermarkets and really kind of ride a, a wave of consumer interest and having something just at the start of that fast fashion trend, you know, Zara and H&M and a lot of the retailers were just moving into fast fashion. So suddenly the monthly glossy publications looked a little bit slow and it was early days for digital. So it really was an obvious big gap in the market. And so that sort of high-end gossip rather than the kind of mass market gossip if you like so talking yeah. about the kind of a-list stars married with fashion and style that was updating very quickly was quite a heady mix um, and emap which was the company i was working for at the time had an incredible marketing department very very powerful marketing department that i learned really i suppose i learned my trade there because i worked on various titles there and 
they did, you know, a lot of homework before they launched something, um, lots of testing, and they were pretty bullish. And it was a great place to work because that, that confidence and that sort of swagger um, emanated throughout the organisation. Brilliant. Uh, and these days now you're running the Albright. Um, I expect you have to wear loads of different hats and, yeah, n- not only marketing for sure. Um, and so with this podcast, I always try to demystify people's jobs uh to whatever extent I can. So how would you describe your job? Um, what does it actually in- entail? So my job as a co-founder means I have to wear multiple hats. So just to kind of give a quick overview of what the Albright is, it's been in existence for a couple of years, and it's really a collective, a community, a network of women and we have been set up to celebrate and champion women to inspire change. That's what we, that's our mission. And that takes a number of forms. So we have physical clubs. You have been into our first one, I know, several times into um, our, our club in Rathbone Place. And it also takes the form of our digital education platform, the Albright Academy. We also have a magazine and we have a number of event programmes uh, every day in the Albright. So it's, it's, it's a number of, of things. And I guess because of that, I have multiple hats to wear. No two days are the same. And I'm sort of used to that because I'm used to running a, a, a complicated media group, if you like. The best way to describe it, I suppose, is high-low. Every day is a bit like a roller coaster. So, you know, on the one hand, I might be doing, as you'd expect for a, a, a co-founder or a CEO of a business, I might be doing meetings with my shareholders or my board. Obviously, it's a very consumer-facing business because I have the joy. And as a marketer, I absolutely love the fact that I'm with my consumer every day. So I can see them in the club. I can talk to them. I can get feedback from them every day, which is fabulous. And so I spend time talking to members and keeping an eye on what's working, what's not working. I might be talking to my team. I have lots of internal meetings. So with the, the hospitality team and also my central team talking about how we're promoting the business how we're doing on digital and then our plans for growth. So we are opening our third club in um, Los Angeles this summer. So we have that kind of the joy of the time difference. Eight hour time difference means that by the time we finish with the UK team and we've sort of finished up our day, LA is just coming um, alive, coming awake. So we often have our we have quite busy meetings right at the end of the day as well, where we're video conferencing in. And, you know, when you're planning new physical spaces, Places, it's there's a lot to do. You have to uh, get into the detail, everything like selecting the wall coverings to the types of chairs that you're going to have and everything in between. I absolutely love what I do, but it's it's a roller coaster. And I think that's the, one of the things that you don't realise until you're a founder uh, yourself and you're really kind of rolling your sleeves up. And when I mean high-low, you know, today I was... Um, selecting the the plates for one of our clubs you know um because the ones we had selected were out of stock and everyone was very worried about that and then I had a call with our chairman you know to talk about what's the growth plan beyond LA well we've just put an offer in on a building in New York um so we're talking about that so I guess I've always had to do a bit of high low but not perhaps in the same day to the extent that I am now yeah because you're not even in one industry only because your your customers are in so many different industries and you could say that you're kind of in property but you're also a members club but you also run events and you're also a publisher as the Albright magazine and we um, have our education 
you know platform yeah. with the Albright Academy. So yeah, there's a there's a lot, but I, I think. If you think of it as a business that is focused around content and community, then that's, that's a slightly different way of thinking about it because you can think about all the multiple activities or you can think about this incredible community of women, this big sisterhood that we're building, a big global sisterhood. What do they want? They want a place where they can come together and congregate and those are the clubs. They want to upskill and that's the academy. They want interesting content that binds them together. Well, that's through our events and through our magazine and now through our book. Then actually it's... It, it's slightly less complex than if you kind of break down the different parts. Traditionally, men have been very good at building up their networks. You know, for centuries, men have been networking effectively beyond their own industries. And women traditionally have been very, very good with their friends, their family groups, quite often their colleagues when they're working um, and, and sometimes in their sector as well. But beyond their own sector, women traditionally haven't networked in that way. And what we're doing is we're bringing together women from all different sectors, different age groups, different stages, some working for other people, some with their own businesses and bringing them together so that they can broaden their networks, get inspired by each other um, and really build that sisterhood because we think that that's the thing that is ultimately going to affect change on a kind of global level. I found it really beneficial even just in the the year of being a member that the people that I've been introduced to through it, or even just in the, say, cafe area and end up having a chat to somebody next to you or I see my old CEO, female CEO, or sort of speaking at, at the events and the, the amazing connections you make through that. So, like, you know, I've met interesting, like, editors and entrepreneurs and, yeah, this amazing breadth of women that are all looking out for each other it's lovely sort of positive yeah virtuous circle it's very we've tried to create an environment where it's very normal to just talk to each other because the reason we opened the clubs was we saw that women were networking in a different way and they wanted somewhere that spoke to them somewhere that was totally designed for them and celebratory of them and and all our members are women but there are always as you see there are always men in the club as well because Mm -hmm. we wanted it to be someone that was useful but really for the members it was about those that sort of organised serendipity is how I like to think of it. And, you know, I get stopped on the stairs and people say to me, I just need to tell you, you know, it's so amazing. I found, I met my book publisher here. I wrote my first book and I didn't know where to get published. I've been published. Um, you know, I've just founded a company with two people that I've met here. I found a NED for my business here. Or just friendships that have formed, you know, yeah. at the Christmas party. People were coming up to me genuinely with tears in their eyes. They were cuddling each other saying, you know, we're like, we're best friends now and we met here just chatting to each other, sitting next to each other in the cafe, having a coffee and, you know, having that sort of chance meeting that 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 leads somewhere. And, and that is unbelievably rewarding for us to see. And, you know, one of the features we have in the magazine now is we met at the Albright because we've got all of these stories and we just want to make sure that we're capturing them. Oh, that's amazing. I, I love that. I love all those, those kind of stories that you get to hear about yeah, your customers and like what you've managed to how you've improved their life. Um, I'm interested to know what's next for the Albright. So I know that you've, well, you're always going at full steam and always got a new thing on the go. So whether that's um, the New York office or the magazine, what are you allowed to tell me or not about kind of your, your direction? So what's next for Albright is really to expand the physical clubs. We want to scale up the digital side of the business. So get the academy to as many people as possible and really scale up Albright Connect, which effectively Mm -hmm. is our sort of wall garden digital community. 
so that people who are not near a physical location can benefit from being a member of Albright, but a digital member. So that's really important for us. We are going to launch further spaces in the US and then we are looking beyond that. So where else? You know, we feel like most big urban spots around the world would be a good place for an Albright. So we're looking at that. Um, We are hopefully... um, selling more of our book, (laughs) which we wrote very quickly, much to Penguin's surprise. Um, They said, you can't do a book that quickly. And we were like, yeah, we can, because we knew what we wanted to say. So hopefully taking that to, you know, greater heights in, in the US as well. And then who knows? You know what we're like. We'll be coming up with something else. Whatever the community of amazing women that we work with every day, whatever they want, then we try and deliver it and develop it for them. It's slightly mad in a good way. Yeah, I've, um, I've heard you and Debbie sp- speak about it before, and um, I'm, I'm half expecting that by the time uh, this podcast comes out, there'll be like a, a <laughs> another new chapter in the in the sort of story of Albright. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we just see, you know, when you see a great big opportunity, and the time is now. It, people people say to us. I mean, I, I met somebody yesterday who actually came for a job interview, and we were chatting, and I was sort of I had about you know, only a few minutes to see, to talk to them. And they looked exhausted by the end of it. And they were like, oh, have you really done all that in a year? Because it is only a year ago that we opened the first physical space, the first club. But I think we would describe ourselves as maniacs on a mission. We know the North Star, we can see the need, we can see the desire for what we're doing and we can see the opportunity and we can see the impact that it's having. Mm. And that really does get you out of bed in the morning, even if you are... Working like crazy, <laughs> which we always are. What about for other women, either starting their own business already or thinking about it? What what advice might you have for them? So what I would say when you're starting a business, I think you should, the, the point on what gets you out of bed in the morning or any time of day is really important. You have to think about what is motivating because it it is 24-7. If you're really going to nail it and if you're going to take something from nothing to something, that is a big shift and it's a big lift and it's a lot of effort. So if it's something that you really care about and you really love and something that gives you energy, you're more likely to succeed. So I think sometimes I see people talking about business, which is interesting on paper or there's a gap in the market. But is it really something that they feel excited and passionate about? If not, I'm not saying it's not possible because anything's possible. You can look at something intellectually and make it happen. But I think to really give it all your energy, it should be something that you love to do. I think that people have to be realistic about the amount of time that it takes to take something from nothing into something. You know, sometimes people say, well, I'd just like to do this. I'd like to start a business because I'm a bit sick of my job. And I think, well, you know, it's not less, it's not going to be easier in actual fact. It'll probably be harder. Um, and I think there's lots of things that you need to weigh up to think about what are you prepared to sacrifice financially from your time point of view and the other activities that you spend your time on. Um, and you have to kind of go into all of that with your eyes open. But if it's something you feel excited about and you just have that itch you can't stop you know you really need to scratch um then then it's something that you should that you should do definitely i definitely noticed that with power suit social and that's power suit social as a side hustle rather than a sort of profit making business but when i started speaking about it to other people i just have this different energy that suddenly my sort of body language opens up and i'm speaking faster and i'm really excited and i'm like 
compared to any other idea that I'd had, it's the only one that I've kind of felt like I truly understood why I was doing it. Like I wanted to talk about uncertain times and how, how to keep creativity commercially viable. My equivalent of that's what gets me out of bed in the morning is that I kind of thought, yeah, I don't really feel like people are having this conversation and I want to drive that and I want to bring people together to sort of try and come up with solutions or ideas or you know, people connecting around this. And um, yeah, compared to any other sort of random idea I've had in the middle of the night, this is the only one that I've like really gone for. And basically, as soon as I had the idea, I was already like paying to register the domain name and setting up all the social handles. And you know, when you're like, right, this is really happening. I'm I'm doing it. I, think I stayed yeah. up till like four in the morning, just on the night that I had the idea and was like, right, how am I going to do this? What venues am I going to do the events? What speakers am I going to have? Like, it's going to be probably more women than men as panellists because I'm sick of seeing it the other way around. But I've also felt that it was going to be something for men and women because I've been to a lot of female-focused events and I, I didn't really feel like I had a new thing to add in that respect. didn't want to sort of make another women's network if I couldn't offer something different than what mm -hmm. other people could. Mm -hmm. um, or do it, I, and I definitely couldn't do it better than anybody else um, in that instance. So, um, so I went, went the 1980s route because nobody else was doing that and so I could... <laughs> well, it's very galvanising working on something that you can see can make a difference and that also you know you can do it and that it gives you energy. And for me personally, I had to have all of those things because I had a fantastic job before I decided to co-found the Albright. You know, I had my corner office. I was working in an amazing um, company um, with incredible brands and loads of people that I really respected. I'd built a management team that I knew were really effective and again I really respected and liked working with. I was working on brands that I loved and felt passionate about but I felt like when I'd gone into um, that company as COO and then CEO that I sort of had a mission and that I had something I wanted to achieve and that was thinking about the brands in, in a different way. So how you could grow businesses off the back of a community because really if you think about it, what magazines are is their community, interest communities. And if you, um, if you have powerful magazine brands, which we had, even though print was becoming increasingly compromised, I realised that we could change the dynamics of the business model and start to think about how we could stretch them into new areas. And and I knew I had to take that company on a journey and the people on a journey to do that because it was quite a different way of working. And I I felt like I'd done it for a number of years and that I had done what I wanted to do. And I could have sat there for another 10 years like many people do. They get to that corner office and there's no way they're giving it up. But whilst I had the energy and whilst I had this entrepreneurial itch and then the serendipity of meeting my co-founder and us having this shared passion around empowering women and seeing the opportunity to grow a business which was about profit but with purpose it just became too much and you know I, I realized that I had to make that leap and people sort of fell into two camps of either thinking it was the most inspiring brave thing ever or that I was completely nuts and people did give me that feedback really <laughs> directly yeah people said you know I had some people saying to me you know that it was outrageous that I was leaving that job because I'd been the first female CEO in a business that had been in existence for over 100 years that was really about women you know and reaching a female consumer so we reached one in three women in the UK and that I had managed to get that role as a woman relatively young I guess for that um, for that role and some people were quite angry hmm. um, and I sort of understand 
where they're coming from. But then other people, you know, were I had lots of feedback from people saying, I just wish I had the guts to do the same thing. Hmm. You know, not 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 just in the publishing industry, but but in many different industries, because people do get quite comfortable and quite sort of cosy. Cosy is perhaps not the word, but sort of comfortable. And, and in a way, I sometimes see people in these very big jobs that have got to the top, they sort of create a gilded cage around themselves. So they create a lifestyle, you know, the big house, the big car, the kids in private schools, their amazing holidays, etc. And they're actually too scared to leave any of that behind. And so one of the things that I say to people when they're considering leaving executive roles to become an entrepreneur is to really give yourself a run-up financial. So you will not have the same, or it's highly unlikely that you would have the same um, disposable income when you're starting a business. So you have to give yourself a bit of insulation and be realistic with yourself about that. Um, So I I think it's one of the things that people don't talk about enough, that financially uh, you do have to think think it through and think carefully about making that leap, particularly if you've got a number of responsibilities. My strong belief is that because there's no such thing as a linear career anymore or they're you know in a minority now people will go from being full-time employed to maybe part-time employed then they might start up their own business then they might go back to full-time employment they might become a ned they might become a consultant and i see that a lot and talking to the members that's a lot of the women that we you know in our, in our network that's what they're doing so I th- people assume that you either go from you know, start try and start your own business and then oh, i didn't work so i'm gonna go and work for someone else but actually it i think it's quite fluid and i think it goes various ways and one of the reasons that we our, our book is called believe build become is because what we think is that you need to believe you know so so you you sort of you can do it and once to, the, to your earlier point thinking about what gives you energy what gets you out of bed in the morning you have to do that to start with then you start to sort of obviously build up your career your business and what are the building blocks and then when you've become what does that mean but we believe that then you come back round again so you know quite a lot of the people that I talk to um, at the Albright and people in my own network are sort of starting again they've had a very big job as a CEO or they might have had their own company and then they're going off to do something different so board advisory non-exec director and so actually although they've got loads of experience they're actually going right back to that beginning bit again about believe and actually learning the ropes again Mm. um, in that particular sector or that particular role Um, so I think it's an ongoing um, process that we will continue to go through during our career as long as our careers last and to be honest we're all going to be working until we're in our 70s anyway <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with house prices and everything we need to do. <laughs> um, I don't know if you know the um, founders of Uncommon, they're a sort of creative studio, Lucy Jameson, because they were on gardening leave after leaving their agency she went and did a load of what she referred to as internships. Yeah. She kind of yeah worked, went and worked at some of the big tech companies I have a feeling she might work for a charity but just Right, I'm going to go and learn loads of things that I didn't in my senior role in an agency. But I think that's fabulous. I mean, good for her. Yeah. You should always want to learn. That's, that's the interesting thing. I mean, I didn't know anything about hospitality until we started the Albright, but I always think, well, how hard can it be? <laughs> I think that's one of the things that I always think is actually when it comes down to, and I guess one of the things that I, my strength, I suppose, is seeing quite complex uh, problems, challenges, and distilling them down to quite simple parts. 
Um, and really, most things just do come down to some logical, simple, quite often just the maths, really. Mm -hmm. Is there a demand? Um, and does do the maths work? Um, and I think if you've got a logical brain, there's not that much you can't turn your hand to. It, obviously, I'm not saying you can suddenly become a doctor or, <laughs> or some kind of astronaut or a physicist <laughs> or anything. But, you know, business yeah. is business. Yeah. Um, and I think if you've got a good team around you and for me, the joy for me is having a co-founder who is just unbelievable and incredible entrepreneur and who has done it several times before. So I suppose I have got somebody who's there quite literally almost holding my hand when when things get tough and they do. My next question is what I ask everybody that comes on here and is always the most difficult question, which is um, 30 years ago in the late 80s, we had hauled ourselves out of a recession and joblessness using the power of shoulder pads, hairspray and furious creativity. Or at least that's how I like to see it. <laughs> um, I, I, don't know that, I don't know if that really happened. But, um, but thinking ahead to another 30 years from now, where do you think or hope things might be for female-founded businesses? That's such a tough question. Um, I did a talk a few weeks ago in Manchester and um, Debbie and I were talking about what we were doing and all the, the stats that have galvanised us to sort of launch this business. And at the end we said, any questions? And there's a guy sitting on the front row. It was, there was only a couple of men in the whole audience and he stuck his hand straight up and I thought, oh no, here we go. What's he going to ask <laughs> it, me? Something it, to kind of catch me out. Is it a comment, not a question? <laughs> and he said, um, how long is it going to take you? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I've got, I'm the father of three girls. How long is it going to take before we've got gender equality? And I just thought it was such a good question and quite an emotional question from his um, standpoint. And I answered that, honestly, I don't know, but we've got to keep trying. And I think I would be hopeful that within 30 years, so I've got a nine-year-old daughter, so she'll be not quite my age, but getting there, that we will have made progress, that we'll have moved some of the statistics. You know, only 2% of venture capital going to back female founders and only one penny in the pound going to going to back female co-founders and 86 pennies in the pound going to back two male co-founders, that those stats will start to change because when people mm. recognise them, um, then things start to change because you've got to give people a platform to make the change. And in a way, our answer to it is... If we can grow, as we call it, this kind of monster global sisterhood of women who've got each other's backs, who are pulling each other up, who are inspiring each other, connecting with each other, then I think we will start to genuinely see a paradigm shift. And what I mean by that is if more women are rising up the ranks in corporations, if more women are starting and scaling their own businesses, then ultimately the money follows and you know structurally in any economy that's really what drives change and so what I would hope is that it's way more normal for women to hold c-suite roles There's only one in six in UK companies at the moment so I'd hope that would be much higher and that would be normal I would hope that more women are funded to start their own businesses and I think that because women 
and men um, will be working in a non-linear fashion. I think it will be more normal to start a business um, and to then, as I said earlier, perhaps move into a corporate and then back again. So I'm hoping that women will feel more resilient, uh, more upskilled, be better at negotiation. Um, so, you know, the gender pay gap will start to close. I mean, there's a lot that needs to happen, but I feel like my daughter's generation will um, see a big a big change if women in the way that I'm seeing it happen here and in, in the UK and in the States really lean into this shift. You know, I, I think that we've moved beyond playing lip service to equality and mm-hmm. I think women are actually actively grabbing hold of um, their own ambitions and, and, and being unashamed about it, about wanting to make a change. And I think... That's ultimately what will mean it is very normal for women to earn the same and to start the same number of companies uh, and to be though in those uh, positions of power in corporates. Yeah, I certainly hope that we've closed the gender pay gap by then. But um, yeah, it's definitely uh, your description is definitely a future I want to be part of. <laughs> Bring it on. Yeah. Um, so finally, where can people find you? So people can find us on allbrightcollective.com or follow us on Instagram, search for Allbright. Or if they want to follow me on Instagram, I'm Anna Christina Jones with a K-R-I-S-T-I-N-A because I'm half Danish. So that Are is you? a Danish spelling. It is. Oh, that's where the lovely blonde hair's from. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, yeah, this, is, this has been great, Anna. Um, I always appreciate hearing those yeah, behind the scenes stories and how it's really going. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. This has been Power Suit Podcast, and I've been your host, Lauren Ingram. Give us a rating on iTunes if you can, and follow us online for 80s power suits and interesting careers info. We're on at Power Suit Social, or I'm on at Power Suit Lauren. Thank you for listening.